I'm Dr. Andreas Lapakis, the editor-in-chief of the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Slonich, a cardiologist and a palliative care physician at the Libin Cardiovascular Institute in Calgary, Alberta. Mike just wrote a practice piece, a five-things-to-know piece that outlines how to manage dyspnea or breathlessness at the end of life, and the article's published in the CMAJ. So, Michael, thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure. So I thought what we might do is go through the five things, and maybe just to put this into context, you know, we are in the middle of the COVID pandemic, and we're hearing, uh, unfortunately, that a number of elderly, frail individuals, uh, particularly in long-term care institutions, are contacting COVID, and, and a number of them have unfortunately died. So managing breathlessness at the end of life, perhaps in a situation where it's not normally managed, perhaps in a nursing home rather than the patient being sent to the emergency department or a hospice, I think, is increasingly important. So I think your five things is very timely. Your first of your five things was no one should die suffering from breathlessness. So can you maybe give us some practical tips on how you decide that the breathlessness, now is time, treat the breathlessness? What makes you decide that it's time to start? I guess I'd, I'd take a little bit of a step back before formally answering your question in saying that my general practice pattern is in a hospital, a big tertiary care hospital. And even there with all the expertise that we have, sometimes I don't see breathlessness really attended to uh, in, in a timely manner. And I think we're a little bit of afraid about treating breathlessness. And again, that's in a center with, with lots of support. So I think, you know, the starting point, quite frankly, is just to, you know, have a, a conversation with our patients and ask them how, how they're doing. And uh, we're really good at kind of attending to symptoms like pain and nausea, breathlessness. Again, we have a little bit of uncertainty around that, both in terms of our assessments and then in our comfort with, uh, with treating uh, the breathlessness. Sometimes, Patients will obviously be in significant respiratory distress, uh, but not always. And, and the other thing that I'll add, what makes things a little bit more challenging with the management of breathlessness is there isn't a great correlation between the degree of hypoxemia that we might be seeing and how breathless people are. I always tell the medical students and the residents that, uh, you know, I, I not uncommonly uh, see patients with congenital heart disease, and many of these congenital lesions will be kind of right to left uh, shunts, and they're chronically hypoxic, and yet they aren't dyspneic. So I don't see some of those features of increased work of breathing, the, the burrowing of the, of the brow and things like that. But I think when people are in distress, many times it's quite apparent to us as physicians and other healthcare professionals, but also let's just take the time, ask our patients, you know, how are they doing? And then that's our opening window to, to start to begin to uh, look at uh, addressing those symptoms. And when you say you ask, how are they doing? Is there a question that you in particular have around dyspnea or breathlessness? Are you short of breath? I keep it blunt. If the patient says yes, but their respiratory rate is perhaps not really super high and they don't look super distressed, you would still, though, say, okay, it's probably time to treat this. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. For a couple of reasons. Number one, you know, our, we're still early in the learning curve here, but things change quite quickly in, in this patient population. And also just using my other kind of historical patient population, mostly patients with heart failure, 
Many of them will say, you know, I'm breathless, but they won't have those features of increased work of breathing and things like that. And not uncommonly will trial some opioids. And then when I see them again, they will say, I don't think I realized how, you know, significant of a symptom that was because I feel better and I'm able to do things now. Clearly a different patient population and a completely different perspective. But I think, again, just illustrates how there is kind of value in, in starting earlier. Item two in your five things is opioids are the mainstay for managing dyspnea at the end of life. And I think a lot of times patients and families and sometimes even physicians are afraid of opioids because they think they might even, I don't know, put the patient into respiratory distress or decrease the respiratory drive. And how do you address that if that's a concern? Yeah, I, I start by acknowledging that concern. Uh, I not infrequently have uh, patients and or family members, as soon as I mention either the term opioid or one of the opioids I want to use, like morphine or hydromorphone, they say, no, no, you know, I'm, I'm not interested. And I think part of that comes from the, you know, the landscape of uh, kind of what outpatient medicine is, especially, you know, these drugs can be drugs of abuse. That's what they frequently hear on the news. Also, Quite honestly, I think they're surprised to hear that we're even using this class of medications. They're familiar with opioids being used for pain, but I have you know the, the conversation with them saying that there are many other uh, indications for opioids. And next to pain, I think dyspnea is probably the most uh, the next most common indication that we use narcotics for. And then, then I nuance that a little bit further by saying what it does is it doesn't take away the reason why patients are feeling dyspneic, but it changes the brain's interpretation of those dyspnea signals to make it more tolerable. And I think there is pretty good evidence that, you know, started at reasonable doses, uh, opioids do not increase PCO2 in, in people uh, who are dyspneic. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. There's a fairly good literature base supporting that. You know, some of this literature is actually at the level of people doing blood gases before and after administration of opioids, and they don't see any significant impairment in oxygenation or ventilation. So let's assume that you've decided that you think your patient would benefit from some opioids, and the patient and family have agreed that they'd be willing to try it. And you're doing this in a setting where there are healthcare workers to assess the patient, uh, maybe PSW, nurse, physician occasionally, but not personnel that would be available in a hospital. What dose would you start at and how would you start? The sample dose that I have in the paper, 0.5 milligrams of hydromorphone, kind of is a nice balance between not being overly small so that we see a therapeutic effect, but also not conversely being a, a very large dose to give people the confidence to, to at least provide the dose. I also like initially starting with uh, a scheduled order. If we just list the order as a PRN, then many times, and we see this in the hospital all the time, especially on units that don't commonly manage dyspnea as a symptom, if we put these as PRNs, these medications just aren't given. So we're only making ourselves feel better by writing these uh, medication orders as PRNs. So kind of uh, an intermediate, a, slow, a low to intermediate dose of your narcotic, we list hydromorphone in the paper again as a, as a starting point, but you can choose anyone. Uh, and I recognize that there'll be drug shortages at various facilities perhaps. So you just be kind of familiar of what kind of your um, 
transitioning between various narcotics is, and there's many tables out there to, to help you with that. I think the other important point is after you provide a dose, uh, you'd mentioned that there is the uh, availability for a, a reassessment. So if we put in a scheduled dose every four hours, don't necessarily wait those four hours to do your reassessment. Go in after 30 minutes or an hour and see how the patient's doing. And if they're still struggling, I would provide uh, an additional PRN dose if available to try to really gauge kind of what their narcotic needs will be. And this is orally or subcutaneously? Yeah. So many times, you know, we're talking about a patient population that things are going to be changing quite quickly. And at some point in time, we should anticipate that we're going to lose the oral route. So recognizing that, I think um, you know, one potential option could be an intravenous route, but there are challenges associated with obtaining and maintaining good IV access. So what we use quite commonly in the palliative world is a subcutaneous uh, butterfly. Almost anyone can put one in. There's no pain associated with uh, kind of recurrent medications given through the butterfly. So it's a, a really nice uh, option for, for medications in this patient population. You don't need any heparin to keep it open or whatever, Not right? You just inject the drug. Yeah. yeah. And you usually put it in the upper arm. Would that be where you start? Yeah, most classically. So basically, if I've got it right, the order would be... Uh, if we use hydromorphone, it'll be 0.5 milligrams subcutaneously every four hours and 0.5 milligrams every 30 minutes PRN. Is that fair? I think that that's fair. The only caveat you might want to add is if you have someone that's particularly frail uh, or, or very kind of older, elderly, let's say 90 plus, sometimes people will start with a slightly lower initial starting dose of 0.25, but if they tolerate that, then I'd move up to the 0.5 milligrams. And then let's say, we'll get to the other drugs in a sec, but let's say you come in as a physician 24 hours later and you look and, I don't know, I'm, I'll make the number up, the patient has received, let's say, six PRN doses during the last 24 hours, so six times 0.5 would be an extra three milligrams of uh, hydromorphone PRN in addition to the 0.5 that they were getting every four hours. How do you adjust the dose at that point? So I would look at that 24-hour usage and then divide it by our, you know, how many times we're giving the scheduled dose. So if it's every four hours, that's six times. So that would effectively double our scheduled dose. The only other caveat I'd add to that is I'd make sure that we're on the right track here, that the patient is receiving a good therapeutic effect with those PRN doses, and that we're not seeing any neurotoxicity. And what are you looking for with neurotoxicity? Just, you know, worsening confusion and agitation. That latter one sometimes gets a bit challenging as we really get close to the end of life because we not uncommonly see agitation or delirium, as it's sometimes more formally called, very close to the end of life. So item number three uh, is if dyspnea persists, a benzodiazepine may be added. And so it's a, obviously a judgment call here in terms of opioids are the mainstay. They, they are, I think, very effective. Obviously not 100% effective, but generally quite effective. But what would lead you to sort of say, and how long do you to say is time to consider adding a benzodiazepine here? And, and how long would you want to wait just using the opioid alone before adding a benzo? So I don't know if there's any absolute hard and fast rule to that. I, the challenge is we're all dealing with unique individuals and unique 
kind of clinical scenarios at variable times of the end of life. I, I think where benzodiazepines particularly have a role is for that patient subset that also have significant anxiety in association with their dyspnea. And for that subset, I think, you know, I would certainly uh, lean towards uh, starting the benzodiazepine a little bit earlier as opposed to monitoring for a day or two. So if you have that associated anxiety, I wouldn't hesitate to add a little bit of a benzodiazepine. And in the paper, you say 0.5 milligrams of lorazepam, sub-Q every two hours PRN. Would you ever order a standing lorazepam or would you generally use that PRN? So a lot of variability, again, it, it probably depends a little bit in terms of uh, the setting where this is going to be employed and the confidence that you have in your, your care team. I think both options aren't unreasonable, especially if you have the scheduled narcotic, so at least you know that the patient is receiving some scheduled medication. If you have a lot of confidence in your care team, doing good assessments and being able to follow up, you can certainly make the lorazepam scheduled as well. You know, our dosing is Q2H. Uh, lorazepam is a little bit of a longer acting medication. So the only caveat I would add is if you used kind of, let's say, three doses in a relatively short period of time, maybe that's your uh, flag to take a step back and say, should we be doing anything else? You know, for some of them, there's just a real, it's really important to be awake as much as they can. Um, I think even in the time of COVID, if someone's dying in general, there's a family member there and to be able to talk to their loved ones as long as they can. And others actually have just looked at me and said, like, you know, doc, I just like, I'm, I'm so tired. This breathlessness and that sensation of breathing, like, I just want to sleep. Have you had that experience? And presumably that would influence you, you a bit on how much lorazepam you would give. Yeah, so that's a really good point. And uh, you might want to minimize uh, the, the benzodiazepines in that scenario where patients value the alertness. You bring up a good point, though, that unfortunately with this current COVID pandemic, um, visitation rights have been significantly limited to the point that uh, in many of our facilities, both the hospitals and our seniors facilities in Calgary here, no visitors are allowed at least in person. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that we're, you know, they're not able to interact by uh, FaceTime and other uh, electronic means like that. And if that's really important to patients, I think we have to kind of recognize that, value that, and, and uh, choose our medications accordingly. And that might mean trying to limit a little bit of the, uh, the benzodiazepines. But if there's a significant anxiety component, again, perhaps we can bridge that gulf a little bit with a little bit of a benzodiazepine. Okay. The fourth item was uh, patients often develop bothersome secretions owing to swallowing difficulties. Want to just talk a bit about the secretions, why they occur, and how they bother the patients? As we're getting closer to the end of life, because our literature suggests that when we're seeing secretions, we're in the last day or perhaps short days of life. You know, swallowing becomes quite impaired, and um, we we find that those secretions pool in the back of the oropharynx. Patients themselves many times won't be significantly bothered by that, again, because we're so close to the end of life, uh, presuming that we're still allowing family members in and family members have access. I think they're the ones that are particularly bothered by this, and it's completely understanding why. It's, it's quite distressing to, to come in and see that. 
I think a, a big part of that would be providing some anticipatory guidance to our, our patients and family members saying that there will be some changes as we get closer to death. These are the changes. They're not necessarily distressing, but if they are, we, we have medications that we can employ. I, I mentioned in uh, the paper that uh, suctioning really doesn't have a significant role and patients can find that uncomfortable if their level of consciousness is such that they're still alert. We do have some pharmacologic therapy available to us, the anticholinergics. We have scopolamine and glycopyrrolate. In Calgary, our, our, our favored uh, medication is glycopyrrolate. It's, it's not quite sedating, although as I said earlier, by the time we start to see secretions, it's generally quite close to the end of life. Some physicians and more importantly, patients and family members would prefer something more sedating and scopolamine could be a good option in that context. And then some, you know, the side effect, I guess, of both of these drugs is the dry mouth. And, and often, certainly if the patient is unconscious, one senses that that isn't that bothersome to them. But what can you use the the sort of mouth swabs that are at the bedside to deal with that, correct? Yeah, so good mouth care, I think, is really important. We see that nicely demonstrated in our palliative care unit in the hospital that uh, we provide those swabs. The, the nursing staff uses them frequently. They encourage the family members to use them as well. And I think that that gives uh, family members just a level of reassurance their uh, loved ones are being well taken care of. And then the final of your five things is patients' dyspnea-related agitation can distress their loved ones. And I think the agitation can be distressing to the patients as well. But I've got to say, as someone who practiced palliative care, that seeing someone really agitated towards the end of life was actually, for me, almost the most emotionally hard thing to deal with. Do you want to talk a bit about that and, and what your approach to that is? I think, as you point out, agitation is difficult to see not only from the family perspective but also from the physician perspective and the nursing staff you know they're there at the bedside far more than the physicians are so i think it's important to address that symptom antipsychotics are a medication of choice it's interesting again i tell the the medical students and the and the residents that it it's nice to sometimes take a step back and look at the literature from a historical perspective and see where we came from. Uh, methyltrimeprazine, otherwise non, known as nausinan, is an older antipsychotic. In many respects, it's fallen out of favor uh, for a number of reasons, including the fact that it's a little bit sedating. But in palliative care, we actually utilize sometimes medications on the basis of uh, some of these additional side effect profiles that we see, including sedation. So methyltrimeprazine in particular is a nice medication to use in the context of uh, agitation um, in kind of the final uh, day to days of life because it both deals with the agitation and as a bit of a sedative, it just kind of calms the situation down. And the dose that you recommended was 6.25 milligrams sub-Q, every six hours, which is actually the dose that I used to use, but that, you know, then the next day, if the patient is still fairly agitated, you can go up to 12.5 Q6H and then possibly even 25 Q6H, although the latter is, I think, uh, getting to be a, as usual, it's a higher dose than you usually need. Would you agree with that? Yeah, in, in general, you know, we'll go up to 25 milligrams Q6H, not uncommonly, but that dose necessarily mm -hmm. won't be escalated to that level. But I'd still be comfortable with the nursing staff providing that if we needed to do that. 
The, the final uh, question that actually is not in your five things, but I thought we should discuss, especially if someone's in a long-term care facility, is what's the role of oxygen? Excellent question. There's a little bit of a literature behind this. I think the bottom line is if someone's hypoxic, oxygen might help with that sensation of dyspnea. Having said that, I don't think our goal should be to uh, make the oxygen saturation normal because that takes away from what we're trying to do here. And I think what we're trying to do here is make the patient comfortable. Uh, if we're focusing on numbers, that just adds to agitation for everyone. So again, if there's hypoxia, it's not unreasonable to apply some oxygen by nasal prongs. The important point to make is that uh, perhaps not as much in a nursing home situation, but in a hospital situation, we do have access to other potential therapies like CPAP and BiPAP and humidified high flow oxygen. Those can cause aerosolization and hence uh, be contraindicated for, for this patient population. So we definitely shouldn't be considering uh, those options. So what I'm hearing you say is if you have, because maybe that availability of oxygen in some places is like may not be that available. So if it's not available, um, perfectly fine to go ahead with the medications we've discussed. If it is available, give them some oxygen by nasal prongs, but don't adjust it on the basis of um, at a sort of reasonable flow rate and, and basically don't monitor the O2 sat. Is that fair? I don't think the lack of oxygen is a significant concern, at least on my part. If you have it, you can put on just a few liters of, of, uh, of oxygen. If you don't have it, the important thing is to emphasize with the nursing staff that that's not a significant concern. We have many other interventions that we've already discussed to help uh, address the symptoms that our patients are having. And then my final question is, we've not talked anything about monitoring blood pressure, uh, heart rate, respiratory rate. At this point, how do you monitor those or do you at all? No, I think by this point in that last day or days of life, in the context of where I classically practice medicine, which is again within the hospital, so we have access to all kinds of monitoring there, I discourage any monitoring because it Again, it makes families anxious. It makes the nursing staff anxious. It's not going to change anything objectively in terms of my, what my goal is, which is patient comfort. Yeah, and I would, I would certainly, uh, I certainly in the palliative care unit that I used to work at in a hospital, even though we had access to monitoring equipment, we actually deliberately, I mean, obviously you'd, you'd look at the patient and you'd kind of count how much they're breathing, but, but we did not measure blood pressures or anything like that. We just sort of focused on patient uh, symptoms. So just to assure people that are listening that if uh, one's not doing that, uh, one's still practicing very good palliative care. Mike, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to say before we sign off? I think we've addressed all the main issues. The only thing I'd like to do is just go back and again emphasize the importance of addressing dyspnea and treating dyspnea because what I see classically is that's a symptom we're afraid of treating because of our discomfort with uh, with opioids. So I think part of our role is to give people the confidence to use these medications and use them safely. And, and the literature would certainly support that they can be safely used. Well, thanks, Michael. The work that you and all physicians, uh, and uh, I think your point about nurses and PSWs is so well taken. They're the ones that are with the patients all the time. And when the patient is feeling really short of breath, they generally aren't calling out to you or me. They're calling out to the nurse who's working that shift. So all of you folks that uh, work in palliative care do a 
you know, a phenomenal job. And, and uh, so thank you for everything you're doing, which is probably even more important right now. So, so thanks very much for joining me on the podcast and for sharing your insights. Not at all. Pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. So I was joined by Dr. Mike Slonich uh, today, who's a cardiologist and a palliative care physician at the Living Cardiovascular Institute in Calgary, Alberta. To read the practice article he wrote, uh, please visit cmaj.ca. And we also have a special page dedicated to all of our COVID-19 content, and you can find a link to it in the podcast description. I'm Dr. Andreas Lapakis, Editor-in-Chief for CMAJ. Thanks very much for listening. 